Welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. This is a special edition of the Brickstore Museum's podcast, The Brick, created during the coronavirus pandemic that now has reached our southern Maine community. In this episode, we're going to explore the history of several pandemics to put our current situation in context. With the rapid onset of the novel coronavirus at the end of December 2019, the world has watched as an unknown disease became a global pandemic. Let's take a look at how disease has affected our lives in a large scale over time. The 1850 National Census was the first to include health data. Overwhelmingly, illness was due to infectious disease. The census listed the leading causes of death as tuberculosis, dysentery, typhoid fever, pneumonia, and old age, quote-unquote, then defined as over 50 years old. Heart disease and cancer, now the leading causes of death in the United States, accounted for only 2% of deaths in the 19th century. The average life expectancy was 45 years old. To prepare for the museum's 2016 medical history exhibit, we took a look at Kenny Bunk's vital statistics from 1800 to 1900 to determine the top 10 leading causes of death in Kenny Bunk over 100 years from 1800 to 1900. Those top 10 were dropsy, dysentery, yellow fever, tuberculosis, scarlet fever, diphtheria, worms, lockjaw, which is now known as tetanus, influenza, and the whooping cough. Infectious disease epidemics frequently swept the country, and Kennebunk was not immune. Attacks of yellow fever, typhoid fever, and cholera each had a great impact on the town, since these diseases were connected to the shipbuilding industry. As Kennebunk ships visited foreign ports for trade and its sailors returned home, so increased the spread of disease. Early Kennebunk historians Daniel Remick and George Bourne both wrote of various epidemics experienced by local citizens. Of these contagious diseases, George Bourne once wrote, At no period since the settlement commenced has the town suffered severely from what has been commonly denominated contagions. Several times in the last century, diseases to which children are most subject prevailed to a considerable extent, and many died. The throat distemper occasionally appeared, though its ravages were not very extensive. In 1816, 
the spotted fever prevailed, and several died. So too about 1820, a great number were afflicted with a fever, of what type we do not remember. But none of them died, while in the neighboring town of Arundel, great numbers were carried off by it. In the year 1815, Kenny Bunkers witnessed an especially destructive attack of typhoid fever. Typhoid, also called spotted fever, is a highly contagious disease spread by bacteria. Daniel Remick, another historian, went on to explain the appearance of the disease in the area. He wrote, The spotted fever, nearly allied to the typhus, but characterized by the appearance of dark spots on the body, made its appearance in this town in the spring of 1815. It was contagious and quite fatal. There were many cases in Wells, first and second parishes, Arundel and Lyman. We have heard it stated that no contagious disease ever known in Kennebunk, while a parish or since its incorporation, was attended with so great mortality as was this. In 1869, a resurgence of typhoid fever hit Kennebunk. Andrew Walker, a town citizen, wrote in his diary, I do not recollect of any time when there was so much sickness in the village as there is now. The disease is typhoid fever. The cases are mostly young people, a few in middle life. It is said there are between 20 and 30 persons now sick in the village and vicinity. There has been but two or three deaths of the disease. It is very difficult to get nurses for the sick. Now we take a look at smallpox and how it affected our local community. In 1806, an unassuming shipping vessel arrived in Kennebunk. One of its passengers had fallen ill with smallpox. The doctors in town at the time, doctors Fisher, Emerson, and Dorrance, quickly established a hospital about a mile east of Kennebunk Point, now known as Cleves Cove in Kennebunk Port. Here, they would inoculate people against the disease. The doctors were there day after day, smoking their clothes before leaving the compound. As a tribute to how hard the doctors worked to defeat the spread of disease, no citizen outside of the enclosure was ever infected. In 1806, the concept of vaccination was still relatively new and not entirely trusted. The inoculation hospital, or pest house, was placed away from all dwelling houses and put near the sea. As the effects of the smallpox disease were well known by citizens of town, the majority of people had the inoculation. George and Ivory Lord and James Bourne all volunteered, knowing that having the vaccination would protect them from getting the disease during their journeys at sea. While receiving the inoculation, patients were restricted to the pest house in order for the small dose of the disease to run its course, thus creating antibodies to fight off the disease in the future. Some saw almost no symptoms, but some saw the full effect. Horatio Perkins, younger brother of Kennebunkport ship captain Jot Perkins, was the only person to die from inoculation. And now a little bit about the smallpox vaccine. At the beginning of the American Revolution, George Washington recognized this invisible killer, smallpox, as an incredible threat to his army's survival. In 1777, he described the disease as greater than the quote-unquote sword of the enemy. Washington instituted a system 
where new recruits would be inoculated against smallpox immediately upon enlistment. As a result, soldiers would contract the milder form of the disease at the same time that they were being outfitted with uniforms and weapons. Soldiers would then be completely healed, inoculated, and supplied by the time they left to join the army. The concept of general vaccination, not to mention the specific smallpox vaccine, was still relatively new. Edward Jenner, an English country doctor, is largely credited for introducing the idea of vaccination and the vaccine for smallpox in the late 18th century. Previously a keen practitioner of smallpox inoculation, Jenner took the principle a stage further by inducing immunity against this killer disease via exposure to a harmless related disease called cowpox. Vaccines inject a mild form of a specific disease into a patient's body to naturally build antibodies against that disease, thus becoming immune to future attacks. Edward Jenner's technique provided safer and more reliable protection than older forms of inoculation. Jenner called his new method vaccination after the Latin word for cow, vaca. But Jenner had no explanation for why this method worked. No one could see the virus with early microscopes. For most of the 19th century, the word vaccination referred only to the procedure for smallpox. The smallpox vaccination immunized patients throughout the world in the 19th and 20th centuries. The disease was not eradicated worldwide until 1980. The United States saw its last smallpox case in 1949. Another disease that came into contact with Kennebunk was cholera. Cholera is the ultimate example of how trade helped new diseases flourish throughout the world. Though cholera had first been identified in the late 1700s, it had never been seen outside of India. The first world pandemic occurred in 1817, when the bacteria were carried with Western traders coming over Asian trade routes. The disease first appeared in Western Europe, the British Isles, and in North America in 1832, spread by traders and merchants, spending time in foreign ports, as well as traveling on newly built railroads that stretched across nations. As the cholera bacteria can survive outside the human body, it traveled on the decks of ships and on people's clothes and material items. Cholera has been described as, quote-unquote, a disease of the Industrial Revolution. It was a relatively new disease, and there were no theories on treatment or knowledge of how it spread. The strength and speed with which it affected people struck fear into most families, who had heard stories of this disease spreading across Europe before it appeared in the United States. Two additional epidemics struck North America in 1848 and 1849. Captain Francis Watts Chadbourne of the ship Susan Lord and Captain James Nason of the ship Equity both sailed from Kennebunk to New Orleans in the spring of 1849 to pick up shipments of cotton bound for Liverpool. While in the city, both contracted cholera. Captain Nason died on May 6, 1849. Two days later, Chadbourne died too. In an effort to prevent the spread of disease, dead bodies were not allowed to leave New Orleans if they were infected with cholera. However, Captain Chadbourne's crew felt that his body should be buried in Kennebunk, so they embalmed his body in a keg of rum and transported the barrel to Kennebunk for burial. According to family lore, his body was buried at midnight under the cover of darkness across the street from the Brickstar Museum 
in Hope Cemetery. What is cholera? Cholera is the result of bad water and poor sanitation. It's a bacteria that infects the small intestine and halts the absorption of water and salt. Most of the time, severe dehydration would be brought on by diarrhea. Once the symptoms set in, death would often follow within hours. Three cholera epidemics hit the U.S. in the 19th century. In 1849, the disease was notably spread by travel on the Atlantic seaboard. From 1842 to 1862, cholera originated in South Asia and plagued the world as vessels, warships, and related transportation moved to different countries. There is clear evidence that the disease entered the U.S. at two points within a nine-day period. New York saw its entry on December 2, 1848, and New Orleans felt its first effects on December 11, 1848. Within a period of five months, the disease had climbed northward through rivers and along the Atlantic shoreline, no doubt on vessels carrying cargo, all the way to Buffalo, New York. One good development from this infestation was John Snow's study in London, in which he discovered the relationship of a number of cases to local water pumps. In locales with high disease rates, he had the pump handle removed, and cases immediately went down. He started a successful sanitation campaign and triumphed in a new method of stopping the spread of cholera. Another disease that affected our community was tuberculosis. Tuberculosis caused more deaths in industrialized countries than any other disease during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Unlike cholera, typhoid, and the measles, all of which became epidemics in this country, tuberculosis became endemic. Its presence was constant, pervasive, and persistent. Though the disease had afflicted humanity for millennia, tuberculosis in the 19th century became more deadly than any other disease at the time, during which one of every seven people died from tuberculosis. This staggering percentage meant that almost every family and community was ravaged by the disease. What is tuberculosis? Many of us have seen a famous symptom play out in a historical romance, coughing up blood. With one out of every seven people dying from the disease, chances are that if you lived in the 19th century, you knew at least a few people with tuberculosis. Initially, it is characterized by fatigue, night sweats, and a general wasting away of the victim, hence the name consumption. Although the bacteria can attack any part of the body, including kidney, spine, and brain, it typically attacked the lungs. As such, tuberculosis is marked by a persistent coughing up of thick white phlegm and sometimes blood. Even today, the CDC works tirelessly to prevent the spread of this disease. For most of the 19th century, TB was thought to be hereditary. Identification of tuberculosis bacillus in 1882, helped to convince members of the medical community that the disease was contagious. Preventing the spread of tuberculosis became the motivation for some of the first large-scale public health campaigns. In the 19th century, there was no reliable treatment for TB. Early on, some physicians prescribed bleedings and purgings, but most often, 
doctors simply advise their patients to rest and eat well and exercise outdoors. Very few recovered. Those who survived their first bout with the disease were often haunted by severe recurrences that destroyed any hope for an active life. In Quinn's Domestic Medicine, written in 1845, the future for a cure of tuberculosis was described. Thousands are yearly falling in the springtime of life by the untimely stroke of this most fatal of diseases. And although medical men have for ages been endeavoring to put a stop to its ravages, I assert without fear of contradiction that in the last stage of consumption, there is no remedy within the whole circle of medical science that will cure the disease. But I have no doubt the period will arrive when this formidable enemy of the human species will be subdued by some common and simple plant belonging to the vegetable kingdom, which is at this period totally unknown. Even in the 21st century, tuberculosis still exists throughout the world. According to the CDC, those affected by the disease must take a schedule of drugs over six to nine months. The disease is so pervasive that children whose parents or grandparents were infected will test positive for the bacteria even if they show no signs of the disease. Infection in the U.S. is on the decline, with a total of 9,421 TB cases reported in 2014. The experience of Kennebunk families was no exception. Edwin Walker, a farmer in the Alewife district, kept a diary during his life, much like the rest of his family. He and his wife had two daughters, Florence, born in 1854, and Margaret, born in 1856. In his narrative, Edwin has provided us with a personal, emotional account of how he lost both of his daughters, ages 18 and 20 respectively, to tuberculosis within a year of each other in 1874 and 1875. In the days following the deaths of his children, Edwin returns to writing of harvesting potatoes on his farm. This is an example of how families accepted the inevitability of death during the 19th century, and how, although in mourning, the surviving family members had to carry on. Edwin's brother, Andrew, who was Kennebunk's town clerk, watched as his only daughter died 11 years later of tuberculosis. Although he never names the disease, Tuberculosis was circulating in the state of Maine at the time. In the early 20th century, the Kennebunk Public Health Association nurse often reported cases of tuberculosis and sent her patients to be admitted to the Western Maine Sanatorium in Hebron. Two sanatoriums had been established by the state of Maine to treat the disease, or at least corral those affected away from healthy communities. Because the disease was so contagious, Nurses and doctors in southern Maine and throughout the country took special care in helping victims to find sanatorium beds. In the time between the rise of sanatorium treatment at the turn of the century and the 1950s, TB in the United States had evolved from a life-threatening disease with a high mortality rate to an illness that could not only be controlled but cured through drug therapy. Changing public attitudes toward disease and care also helped to shut down the state-run organizations, as new philosophies suggested state-operated institutions were not the ideal locations for medical treatment. The Western Maine Sanatorium closed in 1959, 
with only 30 patients on hand to be transferred to the Central Maine Sanatorium. By 1969, the last Maine Sanatorium had closed. The last illness that we'll focus on was one of the most lethal pandemics in recent human history. This was the global influenza pandemic of 1918, also called the Spanish flu, which killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide and came right on the heels of World War I. In the United States, nearly 670,000 people died of the Spanish flu out of a population of 105 million. Soldiers serving in the military during World War I in crowded encampments were also hard hit. Of the 1,032 Mainers who died during the war, over half of them died of the flu. The flu pandemic obtained the name Spanish influenza or Spanish flu because the press in several of the fighting nations during the war minimized the impact of the disease at the behest of their governments, whose censors were afraid of spreading fear and weakening the war effort. In contrast, the neutral Spanish press covered the pandemic's course in greater detail, leading to popular misconceptions of its severity in that country. A milder first wave struck in January 1918, with mortality rates not far outside of a normal flu season. However, a much more lethal second wave flared up in August 1918. An unusual aspect of the Spanish flu was that unlike most influenza viruses, the people most likely to die were aged 20 to 40 years old because that strain triggered an overreaction in that age group's immune systems. The resulting inflammation damaged the linings of the respiratory system, which caused the lungs to fill with fluid and allowed pneumonia bacteria to overwhelm them. In Maine, the first patient appeared at Maine General Hospital, now Maine Medical Center, on September 19, 1918. By October 24th, there were over 8,200 reported cases, almost certainly an undercount, and 200 deaths. Schools and public places closed, and in many main towns, people tagged their houses with white cards warning people not to enter due to infected residents inside. Between September 1918 and May 1919, almost 47,000 cases of influenza were reported though it did not become reportable until early October, and even then, the Department of Health and newspapers claimed the disease was underreported. Maine saw a total of nearly 5,000 deaths from the disease between 1918 and 1919. The death rate from influenza in the preceding years ranged from 1 to 6 people per 10,000. In 1918, that death rate was 32 people, per 10,000. Maine's Department of Health reported that Aroostook County had the highest reported death rate in Maine. Cumberland County also endured high fatality rates. Nationally, about 675,000 people died from influenza out of 105 million total population. The death rate was higher in 1918 than in any year in the U.S. before or since. Worldwide, the pandemic killed 50 to 100 million people, including nearly 10% of the world's young adults. Just to put it in perspective, previous pandemics such as the Black Death and the Plague killed greater percentages of the population, but they took years to do what influenza accomplished in a matter of weeks.
During our research for our medical history exhibit in 2016, we found the Maine CDC's website especially helpful with its report on the Spanish flu pandemic. They produced a report where numerous lessons were relevant for today. As the CDC wrote on their website, from Maine's response, we saw private and public sectors working together, the importance of the media, the drain of resources World War I had on the ability to respond to the epidemic, the impact of the pandemic on essential services, enormous needs for non-medical assistance, and a tremendous effect on vulnerable populations. As this history review comes to a close, one item that's new to worldwide pandemics is the hoarding of food and supplies. In this week's Object of the Week, Collections Manager Leanne Hayden will be exploring the lessons of rationing during World Wars I and II, practiced to prevent such panicking, as we have been witnessing any time we step in the local Hannaford supermarket this week. Make sure you sign up for the museum's e-newsletter to learn more about rationing and receive our weekly Object of the Week emails discussing one item in our collection every Saturday. To everyone listening, I hope that you enjoyed this episode that puts this pandemic in the context of our shared history. Although these times can be scary and uncertain, we can feel comforted by the fact that over the many centuries, with less technology than we have now, regular people like you and I solved viral health crises by practicing simple sanitary procedures and developing new treatments. If there is one thing to be most proud of in our past, it's how people have worked together over the centuries to ensure the safety of our families and communities. As of this recording, the museum remains open, and with our stepped-up daily cleaning procedures, we look forward to seeing you soon. The only thing we ask is if you are showing any symptoms or have been in contact with someone showing symptoms that you visit the museum on another day. As a public institution, we are making sure that our community has a place to come and share experiences and reflect. We will be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Brick, brought to you by the museum's proud business partners. Questions, comments, and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.org. Please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.